1: Hello, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to Dance Notes History. It's that time of the year, everyone, where we look back over the hundreds of podcasts that we broadcast this year. And we bring you a few highlights. Bring you a couple of my favourite bits of the year. Or your favourite bits. Thank you to everyone who's got in touch on social media to let us know what you enjoyed. Um, this is our 2020 best of. What you, I mean, obviously, it's been a heck of a year, but it hasn't been unprecedented. We've seen echoes, hints, clues rhythms and patterns before. Pandemic disease, economic dislocation, extreme weather related to climate change, contested elections, populism, the battle between nativism and internationalism. It's all, we've all seen it before and this year the experts who came on the podcast were able to Remind us of that. Shed light to add context to what's going on at the moment. And they also, of course, came on to amuse and entertain us as well. We've had amazing veterans. We've had politicians. We've had remarkable historians. uh, We've had all sorts, and they've got wisdom for us. And every single episode had wisdom. I learned something. As I've said many times on this podcast, it is the most remarkable thing that I've ever done. I get to sit every week, most days, with incredible historians, writers, veterans, activists, and I just get to listen to them talk. Uh, I cannot believe I make a living out of this, and I do. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you want to do more than this, and if you want to watch, if you want to watch the world's best history channel, we've launched it. It's called History Hit TV. You go over to History Hit TV. we have got the Boxing Day sale on at the moment. So use the code January, and you get a month for free, and then 80% off your first three months after that. So please head over to historyhit.tv. And I do hope you'll join us at a live tour uh, next year, next October, we're live, in person, post-vaccine, we're going to be having fun. Check it out, um, getahistoryat.com slash tour. But in the meantime, everyone, here's our best of. Enjoy. I wanted to make the first episode of this year in review all about history itself, Because we've lived through such a a tumultuous year, I've ended up having a lot of really impressive historians on the podcast and talking about history itself. Because history has been dragged into the battle, whether it's around climate, racial justice, pandemic disease, Britain's relationship with the continent or the American Republic. History has been used and abused by all sides, and it felt like an important year for historians, whether we're talking about the role of slavery in the British economy of failed reconstruction after the US Civil War, or about Britain's place in the world and perceptions of that. And the first one of those fantastic historians that we're going to hear now is Priya Satya. She's a US historian of the British Empire. She is the Raymond Spruance Professor of International History at Stanford University, an historic name there for her professorship. Uh, and she gave me this, well, quite frankly, brilliant summary of the history of history. Let's have a listen.
2: We've always been telling stories about our past, right? Every civilization does it and every civilization has always done it. But the way we do it, the purpose of doing it shifts over time. So if you look at Herodotus, it's a history and he's considered the father of history, but there's fable mixed in there. Sometimes God intervenes directly in the world. Thucydides is different. Well, he's sort of taken as the father of modern history, I guess you could say, in the sense that he's trying to tell a story without God intervening in the world, where human events just build on each other. But those two works didn't necessarily shape how history was written, you know, since then, right? Those works are lost, they're rediscovered, they're translated, they have different influences in different parts of the world. But what happens is, in the Enlightenment, these philosophers in Europe are trying to think of a way to understand history where it has meaning and purpose. Because if history, if human events don't have meaning and purpose, then you're just stuck looking at the horrible human condition, right? And our the horrible things that humans always do. And and you have to just hope that in the afterlife, there will be some meaning. So they're trying to think, okay, there we behave horribly, we are human, but perhaps we can imagine this in earthly time having some kind of meaning or purpose, right? And that's the way we can understand how a good God allows evil to exist in the world, why there is even evil, right? And so what they decide is that, okay, God does not intervene directly in the world, but he exercises a kind of providential care so that we know that we shouldn't panic, uh, we shouldn't even object when we see something that seems evil occurring because it may be, that in the long run, it has a very productive effect. And so this this new way of thinking about history in the 18th century, the argument I make in the book is that it changes sort of everyday ethical thought for first people in Europe who are coming up with these ideas, but then it's sort of exported all over the world.
1: So I asked Priya what she thought the point of history was.
2: Trump supporters say they're on the right side of history. And, and critics of Trump say they are on the right side of history. And the point is, like, n- no one ever thinks they're on the wrong side of history, right? So you can't really sit around waiting for history to judge. And I think it's more important to listen to what historians today are saying about to explain how we got here and then use your ordinary, more, you know, transcendent, non-time-based um, ethical idioms to figure out what's what's the right thing to do like pay attention to the present and and not wait for that future judgment
1: as you all know asking the world's best historians about the biggest questions the biggest challenges that face our world today is the best thing for me about doing this podcast and historians don't come much bigger or the topics more important than margaret mcmillan a legend who's also my aunt talking about her huge new book on war
3: Why is war proved so alluring? Well, I I know it is a mystery, I think. When you also think of the cost of war, not just those who fight, but the innocent bystanders, the civilians who get caught up in war and and often get killed or held hostage or or made into slaves. I think policymakers have tended to think often that war is a weapon they can use to achieve a particular end. Um, There's a lot of talk about controlled wars. And we see this even today, you know, when the the occupation forces, the, the invasion occupation forces went into Iraq in the second Iraq war. I think they thought they could topple Saddam Hussein and and solve all problems. And so I think there is a temptation to think, you know, if we just apply force in the right way, um, scientifically, I mean, I hate that term surgical strike, the idea that you can somehow use violence to achieve a very neat and tidy end is a very alluring one. I think the other thing about war is that it does have an attraction. And if you go to any bookshop, you'll see literally rows of books on war and very few rows on peace. I mean, it's just not a subject that that people find as exciting. And there have always been those who thought that war brings out the noblest side of people, that you are prepared to work with others, die for others. And so I think there is that allure of war. And I think it still is there a bit in societies that war is somehow something noble. And so I think we get a number of reasons why, why people want to fight and why societies think that war can be useful. I think, you know, the rational thing for me is to try and avoid war if you possibly can. But, you know, as the British discovered in, in 1939, you can't always avoid it. Is there
1: confirmation bias? Do you think policymakers, politicians look at Genghis Khan and Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great and think, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely like those guys, not like Napoleon III or Adolf Hitler or the far, far greater number of people that have sought to roll the iron dice and have paid for it with their life and the destruction of all they hold dear?
3: I like the phrase confirmation bias, because I think we all do this. We all look for examples which suit us. And history, of course, has hundreds, thousands of examples. And you can search through history and find an example to prove almost anything you want. And I think those who who have power or aspire to power often like to think that they are like the great figures of the past, that they can do great deeds. You know, Napoleon was impressed by Alexander the Great. Um, He wanted to be like Alexander the Great. And then others came along and wanted to be like Napoleon. And, of course, what we tend to forget, if we're only looking for the great heroes of history, is all those who who came a cropper, who did not succeed, who damaged their own societies. And I think, actually, when you look at Napoleon, um, I I don't buy the great adulation of Napoleon. He left France in a mess. He wasted hundreds of thousands of lives. He he destroyed other cities and and places in Europe. But I do think we we tend, you know, if, if those who want to be powerful look at the past and say, ah, you know, that's a very good example. I can be like that. And perhaps they should remember those who, who didn't succeed.
1: You mentioned earlier the allure. Does it show humans in our widest possible sense?
3: I think it shows us. Yes, I do. I think it shows us at our best and our worst. It can bring out the, the bestial. And we all know that dreadful things can happen in wars. I mean, one of the real problems in a war is you train people to kill, but then you need to keep them under control. And it, it's, it's trying to keep under control people you have turned into, if you, if you succeed, into efficient killers. I think that in a war, we also get things like comradeship, um, people willing to die for each other. We don't get an ordinary civilian life, I and mean, we're not usually put to that test. And what comes out so often to me in the war memoirs and the, 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 the novels about war is this sense that we have never known such comradeship before as we do when we're fighting together, and we'll never know it again because you're simply in a different set of circumstances. And I suppose for a lot of us, I grew up in, in, in a peaceful world. I grew up since the Second World War, and I suppose we often wonder is, what would we be like? Could we do it? Could we be as brave and as noble and what look out for others as, as people will do in war? So no, it is. Uh, it, war is, I think, in, in many ways, a, a mystery. And I think it's very hard to explain. And I think it does encompass great varieties of human experience from, from the best to the worst.
1: If war has been back on the agenda this year, either because of actual fighting that's broken out or because of Great power rivalry that's looked depressingly like tipping into war. Um, This year has also seen a huge popular debate around history as statues have gone tumbling to the ground on both sides of the Atlantic. Or in the case of Edward Colston in the UK, toppling into the sea. Dr Charlotte Riley is a lecturer at my local university, the University of Southampton. And she gave me such a succinct précis explaining why histories aren't actually central to our importance of history. Why it's literally the job of historians to rewrite history, whatever politicians may say to the contrary. We're recording this when statues are being pulled down in Britain, elsewhere in the world, in America, in Belgium. And people are saying you're erasing history by pulling down statues. Does pulling down a statue represent a threat to how we remember or interrogate the past?
4: I don't think it does at all, for a lot of reasons, basically. I think, firstly, you know, the statues fundamentally aren't history, and that sounds like a silly thing to say, but they are relics or remnants of the past. They're things that are old, essentially, is what they are. And historians and history is not necessarily about just cataloguing and chronicling everything that happened, like this kind of huge mass of events and people and things. So I think, firstly, you know, the idea that we can't change anything otherwise we're somehow threatening or damaging history, is a really weird reading of what history is. We change things all the time, right? We tear down buildings all the time. We cut down 200-year-old trees, which you can't just re-erect or put into a museum, all the time. And we don't worry about kind of destroying history then or erasing history. And we don't think that those things fundamentally are part of history or historical. So I don't think statues exist in the space that they would have to kind of conceptually, for that to be true.
1: And also, presumably, those statues weren't put up with the intention of providing kind of some sort of historical narrative, right? That those statues are monuments to usually men by a group of their own fans.
4: Yeah, statues fundamentally are celebratory. I mean, I was going to say pretty much always, but I actually can't think of a single example of a statue that's been erected to kind of criticise someone i think they're always celebratory they're put up in their own historical moment the coulston statue in particular the one that was pulled down you know coulston had been dead for a long time when this statue was erected the statue's put up in 1895 so they're part of a particular moment they're not necessarily supposed to last forever anyway but they're certainly not supposed to give a lesson from history or give any kind of factual information at all, really. As you say, they're fan items, they're celebratory.
1: And then let's come on to your central point, which is so funny, is that people are worried about rewriting history, when that's literally what you historians do for a living. That's the whole point of research and writing.
4: Exactly. The alternative reality where we don't rewrite history is a kind of history based on some enormous shared spreadsheet, where we each tick off the topic that we have finished <laughs> history is a kind of collective project of chronicling and once it's done it's done and you kind of move on to the next topic and even thinking about it for like a moment shows that that's not the case and the fact that there can be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books about the reformation or hundreds and hundreds of books about the labor party which is the topic that i write about a lot obviously it's all about reinterpretation right this is what we do all the time we're always rewriting history
0: Make sure to get every episode
1: by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't
3: stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me.
5: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: I asked another legend, Natalie Zemon davis the same question. She has held professorships all over the world. She's currently Professor of Medieval Studies at the University of Toronto in Canada. I talked to her earlier this year, and I was so glad to hear that she was as excited as ever to talk about her work. She's 91 years old now and going strong.
6: It's a combination of one's own excitement and curiosity about a quest. It's something that to you seems intriguing and worth studying, but that you hope can make a difference to the way people think about their own time, the way they think about the possibilities in their own time, the way they might think about cruelty or generosity, about justice or injustice, that it doesn't determine your ideas on those, those big problems and big themes, but hopefully it can help. I do think that historians, and I think of the wide range of them, are uh, writing texts that could matter. I do think those texts are out there. I think of work that has been done by Mark Mazower, Balkans in World War II. I think of work that has been done by Margaret Macmillan on World War I and the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, I can think of many examples of, of excellent historians who have given us resources to look at the current situations. In some of my own work, I hope that writing that I have done most recently on Muslims and a 16th century Muslim who tried to explain his, his world of Islam to Europeans, a, a man named Leo Africanus, I hope that the perspective in that book could help people not familiar with Islam about the range of sensibilities and thought in the world of Islam and as is seen in the past as well as today, whether it has had an impact is another matter. Who our readers are, who those who see us on podcasts or listen to us or on television, is a very wide group. And the, the people that I hear from, I know, do take these ideas uh, seriously. It does affect the way in which they perceive the world in which they live. I do think that it's made a difference, for instance, in some of the, the dialogue on matters of immigration. Uh, The the political discourse, I think, is enriched when people have drawn upon historical examples to show the range of possibilities, enriching possibilities, economic possibilities, cultural possibilities, that come from a country that knows how to welcome immigrants and showing the range of, of immigrant lives. Whether this is determining in the consequences, political consequences as opposed to affecting a small number of people, I'll just say, I hope so. I hope it helps.
1: In a wider sense, what did some of these brilliant historians think the purpose of history is? Let's hear from Charlotte Riley again.
4: I think it's important to point out that everything has a past. Although something I shout on Twitter a lot is that there are no lessons from history. And I don't mean that people shouldn't listen to historians, obviously, because I don't want to do myself out of a job. But I think it's really important. One thing historians can do is stop people from making facile comparisons with the past or stop people trying to use the past as a kind of flow diagram as to what's going to happen next, right? Historians don't like making predictions and they should try to resist mapping past events onto things that are happening now and saying, well, you know, this happened last time, so this is what we should do this time. And I think kind of very facile comparisons between People are often unhelpful because comparisons flatten difference. On one hand, you get lots of comparisons between Trump and fascist leaders, for example. And in some ways, that can be quite helpful in getting people to think about language or imagery or whatever. But on the other hand, it can be very unhelpful in kind of flattening the differences and getting rid of context and stripping events and people and topics of context. And I think historians really believe in context. They really believe, actually, that things are shaped by the particular moment in which they exist. So in some ways, it's quite important to sort of stop people from trying to just point at things from the past and say this definitely shows what's going to happen. Historians can kind of pop up. A while ago where the Marshall Plan kept coming up in politics, my PhD was about the Marshall Plan. So every so often someone would mention the Marshall Plan and I'd kind of pop up and go, actually, it's quite complicated (laughs) and would try and give some kind of context or whatever. So you end up being kind of historian on call. You kind of jump in and go, eh, it didn't really work like that, or mm, maybe... I feel like historians just spend a lot of time going, eh, it's actually kind of a bit more complicated than that, actually. That's our, like, motto as a profession.
1: <laughs> Completely agree. The only point, I guess, lessons from history is it does strike me that when Trump began on his real aggressive mission to delegitimize the press or in the opening stage of the pandemic, it was historians that were often going, yeah, it's not like last time. I'm not saying it's like last time, but just so you know we've sort of seen this kind of thing before, and it's pretty bad to do that. So that's a role that you and your colleagues can perform?
4: I think so. And I think it's very useful to have historians saying, like, just so you know, this hasn't always gone well in the past. There was a good example when the Daily Mail headline that we talked about, like, enemies of the people around Brexit, and it had the judges. And a lot of historians at that point was like, we've actually heard this language before, and it's not great, this is fascist, this is a fascist trope, it's very important that we name it for what it is. And I think that's definitely true. And I also think historians can be quite voice of hope as well. You don't always have to be the kind of incredibly depressing person who turns up and says, actually, this didn't go well in the past. I saw some stuff about kind of protest movements and how long protest movements have taken in the past to affect change. The fact that the Montgomery bus boycott had to go on for a really long time before that led to change, that you know, lots of kind of independence campaigns, decolonization efforts or like nationalist campaigns to gain independence. It takes a while, right? It takes a long time. And so historians were kind of coming and talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and saying, like, don't get discouraged if this doesn't happen straight away. Like history shows us sometimes you need to be doing this stuff for a long time and it can be exhausting. But that's what works often. So I think you can sometimes be a message of kind of
1: hope. Here is Harvard Professor the mighty Jill Lapore.
5: I think it's interesting having spent some time with the Simulmatics Corporation and seeing the kind of great shuddering that the Academy does upon realizing how implicated social science has been in the U.S. campaign in Vietnam. You know, the support that academic historians and more other kinds of social scientists gave to this immoral war leads. American historians and not so much the social science fields that were involved to really pull out of public life to say, you know, it's it's indefensible to be part of public life, to engage in conversations about policy and what's going on in the world today, because the next thing you know, we'll, we'll, we'll all be complicit in another Vietnam. And so there's this incredible retreat of intellectuals from public life in the U.S. you know, at the end of the 1960s. I understand that. I can see how that came to pass. I probably would have made the same call. But I do think that that public discourse really, really, really needs informed historians who are scholars, whose work is countable to evidence, who are engaged in the method of, an, of a humanistic discipline and who are not toadies and flax and and frauds, which is a lot of what you see standing up and, and offering accounts of the past. So I, I, I think historians need to be, not all of us, but more of us than currently do, need to be willing to bring their work to a wider public or to or to do their best to try to and to not demand that the public come to them, but to figure out a way to go to the public. And I
1: asked Priya Satya the same question.
2: We had the Iraq War in 2003 in which thousands of American historians wrote a petition uh, through the American Historical Association saying, let's not do this. This is not a good idea. You know, there's no abdication of responsibility. It's just that the government and U.S. government didn't like that opinion and didn't listen to that opinion. And the same thing with, you know, things like... uh, you know, gun control, anything that, you know, immigration, whatever raises a kind of historical question, you'll always find historians speaking about it. The question is whether they're heated or not.
1: What's the job of a historian today? What's your job?
2: To teach, to explain how we got here, to participate in conversations about the past, wherever they happen, uh, in public debate, in conversations about how to address the past um, going forward. So memorialization, reparations, restitution, apologies, that whole set of conversations, but also to continue what we're doing when we talk about questions of gun control, immigration, so all that stuff, I mean, continue doing that work that we are already doing. But I don't think that we should be waiting for historians to, to, in the future to figure out what we're doing now. I think people should read more history and I think, you know, historians are not abdicating any responsibility, but there are areas where we could, I hate to use this phrase, but sort of lean in more, you know, and, and recognize that there are historians who are telling us what the past was like. But popular culture is so full of so many other forms of storytelling about the past, whether it's, you know, Netflix shows or pageants and commemorative events, everyone's own personal memories or passed down traditions. I mean, there's like this just vast pool of culture that's grounded in stories about the past. And I really do think these new conversations we're having about memorializations and and reparations are just one way where we're forcing a reckoning with the past in a big kind of popular culture way. I, I really think that's a productive direction.
1: Talking to those extraordinary historians was a true highlight of 2020 for me. It only could have been better if I'd actually been lucky enough to meet them in the flesh and... Uh, and articulate my fandom to their face rather than across Zoom. Uh, But let's leave the last word to another brilliant woman who I did in fact meet. I went to visit her on her 100th birthday and asked her if she had any tips. Her name's Christine Lamb. She has lived through a lot of history. She served in the Second World War. and She's written uh, history books herself as well. Her reply was brilliantly succinct. Now that you're um, 100, what advice have you got for people that seek to have a, a life of adventure like you've had?
6: No, I have plenty to drink to start <laughs> and um, what else would I say I think keep busy keep enjoying yourself find something to do I mean the moment I've taken up painting which I love I've got a really lovely Russian girl who gives me lessons every week that's fun and all sorts of things are fun play bridge I mean not necessarily a bridge but something that you enjoy I, have, I don't know I find I've, I'm always busy doing something
5: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of